Tonight, Justin Trudeau gives 50 million tax dollars to an American comedian and Rachel Notley nationalizes Alberta's oil patch. It's December 3rd and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here and you won't give them an answer. You come here once a year with a sign and you feel morally superior. The only thing I have to say to the government for why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. What a disastrous weekend. Rachel Notley nationalized Alberta's oil industry like she has wanted to do her whole life, really, like every socialist or communist dreams of doing. Even Pierre Trudeau's National Energy Program didn't do what she did. Here, take a look. And so, after listening carefully to industry leaders, to experts, and to Albertans, here's what I've decided to do. Beginning on January 1st, the province of Alberta will mandate an across-the-board reduction of 325,000 barrels per day in production or roughly 8.7%. So it's like the dairy cartel supply management, but for oil companies, except that supply management was requested by the dairy companies because it makes them rich by keeping out cheap foreign and domestic competitors. That's the only way it works. There, there has to be two parts to supply management. There's a limit on the amount of milk that Canadians are allowed to produce. It's a centrally planned economy. It's outrageous. It's un-Canadian. It's uncapitalist. Uh, you need to have a permit called a quota for the right to even milk cows. It's like the old school taxi companies. You had to buy a permit, often called a medallion, or you just weren't allowed to drive a cab. But that's the thing. It, it has to be enforced by keeping out rivals. I mean, Uber pretty much destroyed the cab companies because anyone's allowed to drive an Uber. But back to the dairy analogy, Canadians aren't allowed to produce milk without government permission, but foreign milk is kept out by massive tariffs too. That's essential to the whole scheme working. In Canada, we put huge import taxes, tariffs, on American cheese and milk and yogurt, so much so that people actually smuggle contraband U.S. cheese across the border. There's such a price differential and, and they resell that American contraband cheese for a huge profit. It really is as lucrative as drug deals because it's a controlled substance just like drugs. Here's an amazing story I keep showing people and telling people about and they always think I'm making it up uh, but Google it for yourself to see the truth of it. The headline here, cop sentenced for, for cheese smuggling. <laughs> Let me just read a little bit. A Niagara Regional Police officer who has been convicted of a large-scale cheese smuggling operation and breach of trust has been sentenced to four months in jail. Scott Heron, 42, appeared for sentencing Friday in the Superior Court of Justice in Welland. It's a real story. But under Rachel Notley, we have the worst of all worlds. We're literally banning Albertans from producing oil and gas. But we're not keeping out foreign oil and gas at the same time, here's a news report. Uh, about the 80,000 barrels of Saudi oil we're importing to Canada every day. So that's conflict oil, of course, and there's no gender analysis or carbon dioxide analysis or any of that regulatory burden that Justin Trudeau and Catherine McKenna and Rachel Notley put on Canadian oil. And of course, we're paying world prices for that Saudi oil. Now that goes to our East Coast, including to the big refinery in St. John that the Energy East pipeline was supposed to feed Alberta oil to instead. 
it's not just Saudi oil, they're the worst obviously, but here's a chart. This is about a year old, I'm trying to find a more recent version, but it's close enough. This is from the National Energy Board of Canada. This shows oil imports to Canada. Oil imports, I'm serious. You've heard of the phrase, carry coal to Newcastle? You've ever heard that? It refers to the city in England, Newcastle, that was famous for its coal industry. You'd have to be nuts to try to sell coal to Newcastle, take coal to Newcastle. It became a well-known phrase, at least in the UK. Well, imagine trying to sell oil to Canada. That's how bizarro we are. We're actually importing foreign oil and paying more for it than we get for our own oil. So hold this chart up just for a minute there. So you can see these different bars are different years. Um, so this is hundreds of thousands of barrels per day that we import. I mentioned that the Saudis now sell us 80,000 barrels per day all coming in by tanker ship, of course, and no one calls for a, bang, uh, a ban on tanker ships off the Atlantic coast now, do they? But look at the biggest change. Do you see the dark blue bars at the bottom that just get huge? That is U.S. oil imports to Canada from the United States. The next biggest, the, the pink there, is, is Saudi Arabia. Then green is Algeria. But what on earth is going on with the U.S.? Well, they become a huge source of oil imports to Canada. I'm not even kidding. We sell our Western Canadian oil to the U.S. at a greatly discounted rate, about half price, because of all the pipeline blockades. And, and then they sell oil back to us at world prices that they ship to us by trains. Remember that oil train explosion in Lac Megantic a few years back in Quebec? That was U.S. oil coming in by train from North Dakota. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that's why it exploded. I'm not saying anything bad about the oil of the trains here. I'm just pointing out how ubiquitous oil trains from America to Canada are. And it's all coming in by rail, of course, because Trudeau and Notley have opposed not only the oil sands, but any pipelines. You see my point here? I'm against Soviet-style command and control of our oil economy. I, I don't like the dairy cartel either, but at least the dairy cartel does what it, what it says it will do. It bans competitors to the cartel, both foreign and domestic. But Rachel Notley just banned her own Alberta oil companies. She didn't ban foreigners. She literally is punishing only Canadians and rewarding Americans and Saudis. And what is so gross is that Canada's so-called conservative politicians are supporting this. What is going on? Jason Kenney, the leader of the United Conservative Party, uh, says he supports this. What on earth is going on? It, it's pretty obvious what's going on. He will say or do anything to avoid media criticism until his election. He is terrified of the media. I've known Jason for 20 years, more even. We both lived in Edmonton when we were both in our 20s. We were part of the snack pack, as we called ourselves in the Reform Party days. Remember, he used to be the head of the Taxpayers Association. He would be apoplectic, the uh, 1990s era, Jason Kenney. He would be apoplectic at the idea of nationalizing the economy, especially done by true radical NDPers. But he won't say that now. Just a reminder, this is an NDP MLA named Rod Loyola. He and Jason Kenney together support Rachel Notley's command and control. Look at this. Long live hotels. Long live the values that he stood for. Compañero Presidente Hugo Chavez. That really is Rod Loyola, and he really is a Rachel Notley MLA, and he really did have a celebration of Hugo Chavez, and Rachel Notley really just did command Alberta oilmen and only Albertans 
not to produce oil. Do you think that'll make foreign investors more or less likely to pour billions of dollars into Alberta's oil patch? Do you think that'll make it more or less likely that companies will move either just across the border to Saskatchewan, in the case of conventional oil or fracking, or just to the United States? Look at this graph here. This is from the U.S. Department of Energy, and it is up to date. Uh, you can see that line, that's U.S. oil production. Uh, as you can see, it grew because of the advent of fracking. started to really grow around 2012. That's fracking. But then, under Barack Obama, it started heading down, didn't it? Look at that, 2015, 2016. But when Trump took over 2016, 2017, he really fired the starter pistol. He approved pipelines. Do you remember that? He approved the Dakota Access Pipeline, and they built it within a few months. And he approved drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and he approved the U.S. shipping oil overseas that used to be banned. So in just one year, American oil production is up 21%. By far the biggest producer in the world, more than Russia, more than Saudi Arabia. And, and it's just getting going. Oil analysts predict that the United States will be a net energy exporter in five years. That includes natural gas, coal, pipelines, fracking, whatever. They're just going full tilt down there. And, and we just passed a law banning oil production in Alberta, but only <laughs> in Alberta. We're not, we're not banning oil imports. We're doing a favor for our competitors, our rivals, and in the case of Saudi Arabia, our enemies. And Jason Kenney went along with that. And Andrew Scheer, well, I really don't even know what he said. Here's a tweet he did. Premier Rachel Notley's drastic and extraordinary announcement this evening lies squarely at the feet of Justin Trudeau, my statement. Okay, well, let's take a look at that statement. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here's the gist of it. The situation in Alberta's energy sector has become a national economic crisis, a severe lack of pipeline capacity, a direct result of Justin Trudeau's failures on several major pipeline projects, has led to a sharp decline in the value of Alberta's resource that is threatening tens of thousands of jobs. I'll read just a little bit more. This has forced Alberta to take matters into its own hands. Premier Rachel Notley's drastic and extraordinary announcement this evening lies squarely at the feet of Justin Trudeau. It goes on like this for a while, but... Um, he never actually says if he's for it or against it. He just never actually says. <laughs> he doesn't say. He doesn't say that he likes it. Uh, he says it's Trudeau's fault. Okay, sure. Yeah, me too. I agree in part. But I think he's fine with this too, or at least it, it's cleverly written so that once you've read it, you really have no idea what you've just read. You've forgotten it immediately because it was like, I don't know, salt that's lost its saltiness. What, what even is it? I, I, uh, I think that's a metaphor for, for most of what Andrew Scheer says and does these days, I'm afraid. You, you think that uh, such an aficionado of supply management and cartels, which Andrew Scheer is on the dairy side, would at least understand a cartel only works if you keep out rivals. Otherwise, you're just doing your competitor's job for them. Now, I get that coming from Rachel Notley. She's always opposed to the oil and gas industry. That's her on the left there. Um, so she's against tar sands, tankers, pipelines, no problem. But what's the excuse for Andrew Scheer and Jason Kenney? 
All right, so that's the news from the West. But how about from the center of the universe, uh, Justin Trudeau's world? He just finished jet setting down to the G20 summit. So obviously the man <laughs> needs a day off. Seriously, he's been back in Canada for a couple days, but um, he needs a day off, people. Uh, we're probably coming up on two full months of extra days off, personal days, me time for Justin Trudeau in 2018. Uh, he is the laziest man on Parliament Hill, but he found the energy on the weekend to type this tweet. He said, hey, Trevor Noah, thanks for everything you're doing to celebrate Nelson Mandela's legacy at the Global Citizen Festival. Sorry I can't be with you, but um, how about Canada pledges 50 million dollars to edu-cannot-wait to support education for women and girls around the world. Work for you? Let's do it! What? 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 For those of you who don't know, Trevor Noah is a South African-born comedian who now has a late-night talk show in the United States. According to the latest TV ratings, nobody watches it, by the way. Here's the ratings for last week. In the entire United States, just 240,000 people watched it. So, so it's like a small YouTube channel. But Trudeau just said, hey, hey, Trevor Noah, it's, uh, it's Justin Trudeau, super fan. Um, how about $50 million from Canadian taxpayers? I'll tweet this to you, and, and will you like it and retweet it and invite me on your show? That is, that, that, that's a childish fangirl. That is not a grown-up. That, that phrasing, does it work for you? Let's do it. How about asking instead, does it work for Canada? And let's do it, let's let us do it. Is Trevor Noah some sort of decision maker in Canada now? Some vacuous celebrity who reads cue cards? Is, if, if things didn't work for Trevor Noah, <laughs> would we fix things or change things? That is a $50 million tweet right there. $50 million. Veterans, injured veterans in Canada are asking for more than we can give, as Trudeau says. Albertans can go pound sand. The Oshawa General Motors plant is closing, but Trudeau, in a tweet, just threw $50 million at some lame U.S. B-list comedian. Trudeau does that a lot, though, doesn't he? His, his last virtue-signaling tweet about opening up our borders, that has ca cost Canada more than a billion dollars, according to the parliamentary budget officer. So I suppose uh, his $50 million tweet is only the second stupidest tweet Trudeau has done as prime minister. That's Canada in 2018. Leftists nationalizing the oil patch, conservatives refusing to fight them, and our man-child prime minister jet-setting around the world, throwing tens of millions of dollars at celebrities. And my friends, 2019 isn't going to be any better. Stay with us for more. Welcome back. Well, we've been telling you for about a week now about the United Nations Compact for migration. It's not quite a treaty, but it is an agreement. And 
uh, countries have already signed on to it. Next week there's a meeting hosted by the United Nations in Marrakesh, Morocco, but it's mainly a formality because the deal is already done. Canada has said that it will be going full guns on this. In fact, Canada has had a leadership role on it. When asked about it in question period a couple of weeks ago, Justin Trudeau was dismissive of any concerns and said that it's only the rebel media who cares. Remember this clip? Speaker, the world is seeing unprecedented levels of men, women, and children displaced by war and by persecution. Our government is proud to have taken a leadership role on the global compact. This is the first time the international community has worked together to develop a comprehensive set of principles to better manage this phenomenon. It is disappointing to see the Conservatives engage in peddling rebel media conspiracy theories while we work with the international community to protect our robust immigration system. Well, joining us now is someone who understands mass migration more than most. She's been on the show a few times. Her name is Alessandra Bocchi. She's based in Milan, Italy, and has spent a significant amount of time in North Africa documenting the migrant flow to that continent. And she joins us now via Skype from Milan. Alessandra, what a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Well, you are the only person I know who has actually reported on mass migration from North Africa. We talked about this once before, but can you give our viewers a bit of a recap? Where were you in North Africa? How long were you there? And what were you studying? Um, I went to North Africa to work as a journalist. I got my first job there in Tunisia, in the capital of Tunis. And I worked for various uh, Arab newspapers. One of them was a Libyan newspaper. Um, and there I was uh, reporting a lot on the migrant crisis because uh, Libya is a transit country for most of the migrants coming into Europe uh, at the moment. Uh, I know that even though you're back in Italy now, you obviously have a lot of contacts in North Africa, especially in Libya. Before we talk about the impact of mass migration on Europe, can you tell us a little bit of what it's done to the stability of North Africa? What being the gateway to the Mediterranean has done to Libya? Yes, so actually the corporate media or the establishment media has it all wrong when it comes to North Africa and they completely ignore the voices on the ground regarding this issue. Um, all the Libyans I spoke to, and these are Libyans who are journalists or come from uh, specific uh, civil rights organizations, actually oppose mass migration because it's hurting Libya. Uh, any, it hurts any transit country, but right now Libya is, is the main one. And what's actually... I. I wrote an article on this for the New Arab, it's an Arab newspaper, on how there's this demographic replacement taking place in southern Libya, and actually these uh, sub-Saharan uh, African tribes or militias or mercenaries are taking control of key municipalities in southern Libya and are kidnapping families, and it's completely underreported. And I think the, the corporate establishment media doesn't want to report on this issue because it would destroy their entire entire narrative um, that really Europe should open its arm to mass migration. And if it doesn't do so, it's racist when actually most countries oppose it, not because they hate the migrants or, uh, you know, they're racist. It's just like a, a basic security issue. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. That reminded me when, when you talk about how the uh, Arab uh, population of Libya does not like the colonization 
by sub-Saharan African uh, uh, migrants. You reminded me of the mayor of Tijuana, Mexico, who obviously is himself Latino, saying that this migrant caravan from El Salvador and Honduras was unwelcome and that they uh, were causing social unrest and that they had to leave. That was certainly off narrative too because it's tough to call the mayor of Tijuana a racist. Let's talk yes. about the European side because of course living in Libya might be a goal for some but getting to the holy grail of European, uh, of Europe in general, the welfare, the, the, the free stuff, the free housing, the, uh, the free monthly payments, that is the desired outcome for hundreds of millions of people looking at Europe right now, isn't it? Uh, yes, right now, I mean, things are gradually changing now that we have this sort of populist resistance to uh, mass migration, I would say. But um, the damage in some cases is already done, and it seems that the people who are pushing for this agenda have not backed down. In fact, they have doubled down on on what they want, which is to have uh, unlimited migration throughout the world, but which will mainly impact Europe at the moment. Yeah. Well, here in Canada, it's terrifying to us because, of course, we take all of uh, Donald Trump's rejects, literally. I'm not saying that as an insult. People who are rejected by the American system are welcome just to walk up here. And of course, uh, Trudeau and Hassan fly in plenty of migrants too. But let me, Alessandra, I don't know if you've had a chance to go through this uh, quasi-treaty, but I want to read a couple of passages to you. I want to read you, and this, uh, this is from the document itself. Um, it calls on the host countries to, quote, facilitate access to procedures for family reunification for migrants at all skill levels. Like that's only about 10 or 12 words, but it's so powerful that uh, each migrant who gets his toe into Italy or Greece or Germany or France under this UN deal must be facilitated to bring over all their family from Africa or Asia or wherever, regardless of language skills, regardless of job skills. I mean, those are the words, at all skill levels. So each migrant who comes gets to bring more migrants who get to bring more. It's an endless chain, isn't it? Yes, and also uh, I would say that word, uh, those words at all skill levels shows that they will accept um, lower skilled immigration as well, as well as higher skilled immigration. Lower skilled immigration hurts the working class people um, receiving the immigrants because, of course, um, the the price of, of labor goes down um, and it's unfair competition. And then high-skilled uh, immigration actually hurts the country of origin where those migrants are leaving because there's a brain drain. So it's a lose-lose situation. Yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about what I think is the most Orwellian part of this migration compact. They talk about giving new human rights, the human right to migrate, the human right for migrants to have national and local health care. Like there's the word rights appears 112 times in this document. Always the rights of the migrant, never the rights of the domestic host population. But what actually scares me, Alessandra, and I'd like your opinion on this, because Tunisia and Libya, they're not the worst places in the Arab world, but you couldn't call them completely free. But here's what's terrifying about what European countries are signing on to. And you're a journalist who's worked in authoritarian places. 
What do you think of this? Again, I'm quoting from the, from the compact here. Um, governments must, and I'm just going to read about three sentences to you, Alessandra. I'd like your view on this. Governments must promote independent, objective, and quality reporting of media outlets, including internet-based information, including by sensitizing and educating media professionals on migration-related issues and terminology, investing in ethical reporting standards and advertising, and stopping allocation of funding or material support to media outlets that systematically promote what they call intolerance, xenophobia, racism, and other forms of discrimination towards migrants. So this isn't just a migration document. It's a media strategy. Advertising, training journalists, re-educating journalists, deciding what is quality journalism, and punishing those who don't meet the government standards. What do you think of that part of this compact? Well, obviously, what they mean by ethical standards is nobody can disagree with our with this strategy. So, someone like myself who is contesting their um, agenda, not because I'm a racist, not because you know I dislike migrants. Actually, I make the case that it hurts migrants as much as it hurts the host nations and it hurts the the countries of origins where these migrants leave as much as the host nations. But I would be obviously. Uh, seen as someone who doesn't report on the issue in an ethical and informed way when actually I've spoken to people on the ground who are Africans, who are Arabs, who are Europeans, who have all told me the same thing. It's just the elites in every country which see things differently. If you talk to common, just common people, it could be a shop owner, it can be a taxi driver, they will all tell you the same thing. They're actually very reasonable, they're very common sense, they, they make a lot of sense. So it's, it's really crazy and Aurelian what this document is pushing. Um, just before we turned on the camera, you mentioned to me <clears throat> that Italy, which is now led by an interesting coalition government, it's populists of the left and the right. And I find that fascinating. I, I follow your interior minister, Matteo Salvini, online. I find him fascinating. Um, migration is a big deal for him. Over the weekend, a populist anti-migration party had success in Spain called Vox España. Um, so I see this rebellion brewing in Italy. You told me just before our interview started that this uh, UN compact is actually being put to the Italian people through their parliament. Now, tell us a little bit about that. I, uh, I think that's a, a great touch of democracy. Our government has not uh, had a vote or a debate on it. What is Italy doing? Because I know Salvini is very skeptical of mass migration. Tell me about Italy. So I would say that it's a case of democracy, but not really direct democracy, because most people in the country oppose mass migration. But the Five Star Movement, the Five Star Movement has been sort of schizophrenic on the issue of immigration. Yeah. So uh, they have the majority of um, seats in in the parliament. However, um, they are have 
do not have a clear position on this issue, but the president of the chamber, who is from the Five Star Movement, is in favor of the Global Compact Initiative. Um, so it's unclear how the parliament will vote on this uh, on this case. Uh, but the League and uh, a few other right-wing parties are obviously opposed to it. However, it's not sure whether they have a majority to oppose the vote overall. So for now, Italy will not be signing the Global Compact Agreement. It will not be going to Marrakesh to do so. But uh, the legislation le legislation still might pass in Parliament. And the problem is that the, you know, the people who are in favor, it says it's non-binding. This is the main argument we hear in favor of this uh, Global Compact uh, document. It's not binding. You know, we the not, not, the governments and the, the nations can do whatever they like. Um, then. The first question that comes to mind is, if it's not binding, then why is it there in the first place? Like, why, why should they create it in the first place? Second of all, it's really a trick, because in many um, uh, constitutions in Western Europe, including Italy, for example, in Italy, in the, in the Constitution, um, the 10th the point says that uh, all uh, issues regarding refugees and migrants must be subject to international law. So in, that, in this case, if the Global Compact Agreement is signed, it means that Italy will have to subscribe to those laws. So it's a trick. So if you read the Global Compact, it says it's non-binding, the national governments can do what they like, but then a lot of these national governments who signed this treaty um, have laws that say that issues regarding refugees and migrants are subject to international laws like the Global Compact. Yeah. Does that well, make any sense? It, it absolutely <laughs> makes sense. <clears throat> and although that's explicit in Italy's constitution, according to what you've just told us, um, even here in Canada and even in the United States, now they are not going to sign it, but in Canada, our judges, our refugee tribunals, our politicians always say, well, our international obligations, well, international law, well, we promised the UN. So it's a de facto treaty, even if it doesn't go through the same scrutiny of a treaty. Um, uh, Alessandra, you and I have talked about this conference before, and I know you, you're busy, you have, uh, you, you're finishing your studies in the next week, but um, maybe we can talk to you uh, while the conference is going as sort of an expert, maybe we could Skype to you. We're sending a reporter from Canada, our own David Menzies, we're sending him to Marrakesh. The UN's trying to keep him out, but we're trying to get him in. If you had one question or one theme that you recommend David would ask people at this Marrakesh conference, it, whether it's NGOs or diplomats or politicians, again, they're gonna try and keep him out, but if he does get in, what kind of questions would you recommend that David put to these diplomats and bureaucrats? Um, well, <laughs> that's you caught me off guard. But the f I would say two main questions. The first one is um, how do they intend to combat human trafficking, which is mainly hurting the migrants who fall victims to slave trades, if um, if they have this open border policy, um, while at the same time they claim that national governments can control their borders. That makes absolutely no sense. Second of all, um, what I just mentioned uh, about uh, many of the countries saying that uh, the, the proponents of the agreement say that it's non-binding, including the Global Compact document. However, many countries like Italy uh, have laws which explicitly say that uh, matters that, are, um, that deal with refugees and migrants are subject to international law, which means it is binding. Right. 
Those are two great themes, and I'll make sure to pass that on to David. That's great advice, and you would know. You've, you've actually worked in the region. Alessandra, it's great to see you. Thank you for your time. And Thank you for having me. Well, it's always a pleasure. And let me say to our viewers, if you want to help us cover the cost of David and the videographer we're sending with him going to Morocco, we're flying uh, the cheapest uh, economy flights we can book, uh, staying on the cheap, everything is uh, low cost, but it's still going to cost several thousand dollars to get to Morocco from Canada. And if you want to help chip in, please go to rebelun.com. I guarantee you, we will be the only Canadian media and one of maybe the only foreign media too uh, going there that will ask skeptical questions. They're going to try and keep us out, I'll tell you that right now. But as Sheila Gunn-Reed has proved, you can still do great skeptical reporting even without official credentials. So that's rebelun.com and that's just next week. All right, stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Hey, welcome back on my monologue Friday on how journalists see themselves. Muta Ween writes, the media isn't the enemy of conservatism. The media is the true enemy of truth. Well, the word media, of course, comes from the uh, Latin word for middle, medium, middle, mid, medi. Um, but instead of being the, the middleman, it's a filter, it's a sensor, it's a spinner. So it's no longer a clear lens, it's a distorted lens. And you just can't trust it, can you? The good news is we all now can be little journalists in our own right. We can record the news on our cell phones, we can read and write the news on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, the trouble now, though, is that big media is teaming up with social media to silence citizen media. And that's the big fight, censorship, don't you think? Paul writes, I hold journalists in high regard. I just don't think many of the people calling themselves journalists are actually journalists. Most people calling themselves journalists today are propagandists and political activists serving the far left instead of the truth. I would consider Toby Robinson, for example, to be more of a journalist than the people from Britain's news media who were covering his last trial. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I've, I've shown you the video before, I'm pretty sure. When we were at his last trial, I brought along some friends with me, Andrew Lawton, Candace Malcolm, Cassandra Fairbanks, Abby Amini, and so they were not familiar to the mainstream media in the UK. They, they knew me, but they didn't know my friends. Uh, just to recap, I think some of you have seen this. So Andrew Lawton went in the court ahead of me. He got there about half an hour before me. He was sitting in front of the other journalists. He wasn't eavesdropping on them. He was just, you know, he was like two feet away from them. And they were colluding with each other in advance of the trial, saying, oh, let's only say there were a couple hundred people here. We don't want to give Tommy too much credit. There were 2,000 people outside. So Andrew Lawton, because the media let their guard down because the mainstream media in the UK didn't know who he was. They thought he was just in on it or they just thought he was ignoring them. Andrew Lawton observed the media party in the UK harmonize and coordinate on how they were going to smear Tommy Robinson together. They had to. You couldn't have the Daily Mail saying there was a thousand people uh, the Daily Telegraph saying there were 2,000, and the Mirror saying there was only 500. They had to get their story together. So they did that in front of Andrew Lawton. So that's a great example. Uh, but don't think it's any better here in Canada. On my interview with Anthony Fury on the cost of illegal border crossers, Brad writes, General Motor employees and Alberta oil workers should forget about applying to EI. Hop the bus to Roxham Road, New York, and 
enter Canada as an irregular border crosser, life will be better. You're not even kidding. You've got a free hotel room. I mean, they're buying that hotel for migrants in Toronto, right? Sheila Gunn did a story the other day about how you can get 50,000 bucks a year in benefits as an illegal migrant. And um, you won't be deported for years. I've just in the last uh, couple of days read stories about a, a law-abiding, tax-paying, educated, successful entrepreneurial family in Calgary, just south of Calgary. Not criminals, came here lawfully. They're being deported by Trudeau, whereas anyone just walks across the border from New York State and they can stay for 10 years. I mean, they won't have a hearing for 10 years. You know, seriously, if you are <laughs> in Canada and you follow the rules and you're kicked out, why wouldn't you just go around and, and walk in? I mean, really, it's turning law-abiding people into suckers. That is a big reason why trust is falling. And you, I tell you, for those open borders, open immigration types, they don't understand they're poisoning the well. Even people who are pro-immigration, even new immigrants themselves are so grossed out by this double standard, this, this separate illegal way in the country, I think they're really torching any public appetite for immigration. Yeah, but if Andrew Scheer doesn't speak up about it, you know, we're just going to keep lurching in that direction, won't we? I should just say in passing, I, I saw on the weekend that a new party uh, won for the first time representation in Spain. The name of the party is Vox. Espana. I can't say I know too much about it. Um, I watched some of their campaign ads and, and read a little bit about them yesterday. Um, they're pro-Spain. They're, they're, they're against the separatists. Uh, and they're anti-migrant. They want to stop the waves of immigration storming into Spain, including the little enclave in North Africa and Gibraltar and places like that. Um, I think when you push people so far and you show that you don't respect the rules and the establishment is not with the people. People smash the establishment. It just happened in Spain. It's happening throughout Europe. And in a way, the protest riots in Paris are part of that. If you haven't yet seen them, I encourage you to go to rebelfrance.com. We sent Jack Buckby and Martina Marcota to Paris this weekend. Sounds like a lovely weekend, doesn't it? Well, yeah. Um, they uh, had tear gas uh, sprayed at them and uh, they were fire hosing other protesters. You really got to check out that coverage. It really was incredible reporting. Frankly, the best reporting I've seen in the world on those Paris riots. And you should remember, those riots are in large part against Macron's carbon tax. So check that out, Rebel France. That's it for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. And keep fighting for freedom.